Welcome to the Succession Stories podcast. I'm Lori Barkman. I work with business owners to maximize value, create options for the future, and be happy in your next. I'm excited to share the What's Next series as part of Succession Stories. These conversations spotlight the theme of transitions. Changes can come at you unexpectedly or be planned. Are you ready? After all, in business and life, Succession is about transitions and how you embrace what's next matters. Subscribe to our newsletter for more resources to build value in your business and plan your transition. Visit small.big, that's small, D-O-T, big.com and sign up today. This is the second installment of the What's Next series, conversations with entrepreneurs about changes in their life and their business. Today, I'm joined by Jeffrey Walker, He's a U.S. Air Force veteran and former JAG prosecutor. After retiring from the military, Jeff became a vetrepreneur and grew an international consulting practice that took him to 34 countries over seven years before parting ways with his partners. Eventually, Jeff followed his true passion, writing, and became an award-winning author of World War I historical fiction novels. If you're thinking about a transition in your business, I hope this episode provides inspiration to help you find your next. Jeff, welcome to Succession Stories. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. We were introduced by Rick Tarian, who was on the show in an earlier episode, and I've really enjoyed getting to know you. I appreciate that you've come here today to have a conversation about a couple of things. One is your family's succession story, and also that you're open about sharing your transition stories in your career and ultimately what you're doing today, which is really fascinating. So welcome. And let's start by talking about you. Can you give me a brief background? Let me start by saying thank you for having me, Lori. It's always a pleasure to be on interesting podcasts like this. And you've got such a remarkably cool market niche going here. I'm excited to be part of it. So I grew up in a very stereotypical Midwest small town sort of a single industry town and went to a big township high school and went away because I wanted to get out of that small town desperately from as far back as I can remember. Went away to school in New Orleans. I did a lot of growing up in New Orleans when I was at Tulane. I spent about a nanosecond after graduating as a stockbroker, a job which I absolutely loathed, it turned out, and searched for something that would be whatever the opposite of stockbroker was. And it turned out that was B-52 Navigator. So I joined the Air Force (laughs) and went to officer training, went to navigator school, went to bomber school, flew bombers. Had a forced transition in there where I was medically grounded from aviation. By the way, there's like 240 excludable conditions for flying in the Air Force. So you don't have to, people think, oh, well, you're really sick. Well, no. Things like sleepwalking or wetting your bed after age 12, neither one, one of which actually. Those weren't yours though, right? <laughs> we're not. And it's really quite remarkable how many, how many ways you can get yourself grounded. You can share as much as you want on the show. It's all, it's all good. <laughs> yeah. So uh, kind of a, I went through some grieving process, uh, losing my aviation career, which kind of defined a lot of me at that time. And the Air Force offered me a great opportunity. They sent me all expense paid with my captain's salary to Georgetown Law for three years, and I became a JAG, a judge advocate, military lawyer. And that's where I spent the rest of my 20 years in the Air Force. I retired right at 20 years, as early as I could, as a lieutenant colonel, started a a small DOD consulting company with a couple of other retired Air Force guys, and did pretty well with that, built that up over a period of about seven years. There's another succession story there, I suppose. I got the seven-year itch, sold my shares back to my 
other founding partners and took an appointment as a law professor and an assistant dean at a law school in New York City, ran international programs there, taught criminal law and international law. After five years, my wife, who's from upstate West New York, Rochester, not up the Hudson, and myself from a small town in Illinois, really had enough of New York City. My apologies to the New Yorkers out there. And uh, moved back to the house we'd kept in Virginia in the Tidewater area of Virginia in Williamsburg. And my wife said to me at that point, you've been talking about writing fiction all the time I've known you. Take a year off and write some fiction. And that's how I got into the authorpreneur business, another business transition for me. I like the notion of authorpreneurship. That phrase, I think, was invented by Joanna Penn, who's a remarkable author herself and consultant and speaker, and I've seen and heard her many times. I love writing, but I also like selling books. So that's why I refer to it as authorpreneurship, which, of course, fits in wonderfully with uh, what Rick Terrian's doing, what you're doing, which is what I guess got me full circle back to the show. Yeah. Well, thanks for that introduction. And it's hard to summarize such a wonderful career like yours in a few sentences, which you were able to do. But just the highlights I'll call out that I thought were really cool is, you know, when you left the Air Force and became what some people call a veteranpreneur, veterans who start their own companies. So you certainly have a lot of experience with that. So maybe we'll hit on that a little bit later. And then also, as you said, an authorpreneur. So that's great. So entrepreneurship, full stop, is part of your DNA, which brings us to your family. Tell us about your family's business and what they did and who was involved from, the, from your family in the company. The family business is still going strong, by the way. My cousin Paul, who's a year older than me, is now the, the CEO. This company was started by my grandfather during the Second World War. My grandfather was a remarkable story in and of himself. He, he dropped out of high school, rode the rails for a while, and ended up in the Marine Corps right, at, right after the First World War and was very quickly made into an officer, hadn't even graduated from high school, and was discharged medically after getting malaria, serving in the gunboat diplomacy days in Haiti. So he's got five kids, and it's the Depression. And he's out of a job. He did some WPA work. And he went to one of the factories in my hometown and went to the owner and said, I will do anything. I, I just need work. And he said, look, all I can do is give you a job as a janitor. Literally handed him a broom and said, go sweep the factory. And within about 18 months, my grandfather was the plan manager <laughs> for that company. <laughs> so a very bright man in his own right. During the Second World War, as anybody who knows anything about the manufacturing sector during the period. If you could put, you know, nut A on bolt B um, during that time, you could get a government contract. Everything was working. So my grandfather, was, while running at full tilt, a company doing war production as plant manager, was encouraged by the owner of the company to start his own side business to do subcontract work. So he was working, you know, 80, 90 hours a week, basically two full-time jobs during the war. And of course, when the war ended and the war production immediately dropped off, he had his own company and he had three sons, my dad being one of them, coming back from the service. All three of them came back at grandpa's insistence request to uh, help build the company that he had started during the war. My father always had a little bit, I think, of bitterness about that. He really wanted to go to university and gave that up to come back and join the family business, but was a successful businessman. So fast forward to when I was um, a young adult. This is a classic problem that I know you've, you've discovered and talked about and probably written about and podcasted about, about that, that third generation succession in a family business. So grandpa, one guy, three sons, three guys, they all grew up in the same household with the same father. 
and did okay with that for a long, long time. My dad was the first one who wanted out. And that was an opportunity for my oldest uncle to reset the generational ownership of the company. He had five sons of his own. So that's really what happened. But there was a, I saw a lot of acrimony and bad feeling between the brothers around that. That shocked me. I was certainly old enough. I was in the Air Force as a lieutenant by that point in time, I guess. And these men, these, these had been these towering figures in my life growing up. You know, obviously these three men, my, my, my dad and my two uncles, were such a huge presence in my life. And to see how hard that was, how that ripped apart their personal relationships at the end of my dad's participation in the company, that was the catalyst. And my father, I think, carried a lot of guilt for that as well. But they did finally reset. And again, the company under the, the ownership and, and management of my my uncle Pat, my oldest uncle's sons, is doing quite well. But again, they've they've got five sons and a and a, and a brother-in-law running that company, so they're going to have another succession problem coming very soon because they're all in their sixties now. So witnessing that was a real shocker for me. I never had any desire myself to go into the family business. I'd done some summer work there when I was in college in the shop, you know, running press breaks and degreasing parts and things like that. My dad and my uncle thought that was a character builder for us to go to go uh, do summer work in the, the hot factory doing the most low level entry level stuff we could do. I asked my dad about that years later and said, you know, I never had any desire to come in the business. Why did you make me go work there in the summer? The pay was good. He said, because I knew it would make you go back to college. <laughs> a very wise thing. So that was my connection. I had a brother who desperately wanted to be in the company business and the family company, I should say. And, and that didn't turn out well. That was part of the fallout from the succession story. So I, I was left me with a very bad personal experience of having witnessed just secondhand through my father, how that succession, how difficult that was, how really, really difficult that was. My father died four years later, and there really hadn't been any peace amongst the, the brothers until his funeral, when the two remaining brothers finally sort of sat down and talked. So it shows how disacrimonious it really was in the end. So, Jeff, thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure that was a really difficult time. That was four years from when your father left the company to his death. Is that right? Is that what you said? Yeah, I think it's a, yeah, four, four and a half years. I think that's correct. Did he know he was sick when he decided to leave? Consciously, no. Subconsciously, maybe. I mean, look, he died of lung cancer and has smoked three to four packs a day for decades. So I think there was, a, uh, there was certainly a clue there. And he'd never been robustly healthy, I don't think, uh, as far back as I can remember. So after he left, was there just no relationship at all between the three brothers? Two, yes. My father and one brother. And then the other brother was sort of on the outs. I played an odd part in that, actually, that I was back. I was in law school. So actually, I was a captain, I guess, wasn't I? You know, when someone's dying of cancer or some other disease like that, it's never straight down. It's always just up and down. So I was flying back. I kept getting these calls saying, you know, dad's dying. You should come out now. Did that a couple of times. Um, and during the last of those, my dad was bemoaning not seeing his brother and in between sort of the morphine. And um, so I, I just got in the car and drove over to my uncle's office and sat down and said, if you want to talk to your brother while he's still alive, you better do it today or tomorrow. Um, so I sort of forced that reconciliation, I guess, in that regard. I'm glad I did that. Not yeah. easy. But, no, uh, that's not easy. Were you there yeah. during their conversation or did you leave the room? 
I asked my uncle if he wanted me to stay because uh, my father was by that time was sort of hard to understand. And he looked at me and said, I've known him longer than you have. He's my brother. <laughs> so I got I, this. You can leave. Oh, Thank you. Thanks, so son. I went, down, I went down and had coffee with uh, his assistant who'd come with him. And, and we, we, so we sat in the cafeteria for an hour while they talked. Yeah. Well, you played an important role there at the end. Totally accidentally. Yeah. <laughs> totally accidentally. Yeah. Well, you, you were sensitive to the situation. So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about you and your career. I was curious about when did you know it was time to make a change? You said you, you left the military right at 20 years. So there is a magic number there for retirement. So I can surmise you know, why you chose that. But if you want to talk a little bit about some of the other transitions that led you down the path ultimately to being a writer, that would be interesting to hear. Yeah, good question. I left right at 20. I could have stayed till 30. Uh, I left at 20, mostly because I saw what senior ranking lawyers in the military did, and it didn't involve very much law. <laughs> it involved a lot of secondhand law and a lot of managing personnel. And I, it just didn't appeal to me. I'd done a tour at the Pentagon and seen up front at the highest levels with the Judge Advocate General of the Air Force, what his day was like. And it wasn't something I aspired to. So I retired at age 43, and I, ever since, I've been getting paid to breathe in and breathe out every morning. Um, so that's a pretty good deal, getting a pension at 43. That's actually enabled some of the other things I've done, having that. You can't live exclusively on a lieutenant colonel's pension, but it allows a financial cushion for a lot of other, taking a lot of other risks. So at that point, I, I was throwing a lot of chum in the water to find out what my next career was going to be. Uh, and I ran into an old friend who, in, I think in the, the commissary, the, the military supermarket uh, on base, right before I retired. And he said, you have any, I heard you're retiring. Do you have anything planned? And I said, no. He said, well, I'm, I, I've been doing individual consulting since I retired back to DOD, to Department of Defense, and I, I'm turning away work. So I'm going to start my own company. Why don't you come and be a partner in that? Let's start a company together. We brought in a third founding partner as well, who happened to be my friend's old Air Force Academy roommate. Um, so yeah, they went back a long way. And um, we had some very rapid success. We outpaced our strategic plan almost immediately uh, on growth of the company. In fact, I was doing some other stuff on the side. I was only doing it part-time. I had to give that up uh, all, very, very quickly just to concentrate full-time on the company. And um, so it grew, grew nicely at a great pace. Uh, we, we formed a separate subsidiary that I ran um, to do international work. Uh, mostly to protect the security clearance stuff from the other side of the company, because we we're going to be hiring a lot of foreigners for the overseas work. And I won't go into that, but that can muddy up the whole security clearance problem. And um, that went along. I get perked along quite nicely. In my international side, we did work in 34 countries uh, in, those, in those seven years. So it was very interesting. I was traveling a lot. It was work I loved. During that time, I spent a year in Baghdad uh, running a big program. Uh, that was funded by the State Department. Um, that was interesting, uh, being awakened by rockets and mortars many mornings. Um, so after seven years, I, we, I was getting itchy. The three founding partners were, had a different views of what the strategic uh, vision of the company should be going forward and had some fairly nasty arguments about that. And I, I of course, getting these flashbacks of the succession problems with my dad and my uncles uh, had no desire to go down that rabbit hole. So uh, I realized uh, in disagreements, I was going to be outvoted two thirds to one third of the shares. Right. Uh, and um, so I said, look, it just, let's just make me a fair offer and I'll leave. And they did. 
And uh, about three or four months later, I was offered a job um, by the dean of this law school, St. John's up in New York. Uh, and I said, hey, this is great. Let's do this. So we moved to New York. And uh, that's why I, I made that succession. Uh, and then uh, after five years, burned out on New York. And that was sort of a unplanned fell into it because it was a great idea of my wife's suggestion that I write books. And it's gone pretty well. Well, I think that that's really a special thing that she recognized in you that was something that you've always wanted to do. And she gave you the encouragement to go chase it. I've my life maxim has always been it's better to be lucky than smart. And I just lucked into marrying up. I mean, I, I married such a good woman. And Kathy has been so remarkably supportive and wonderful and a contributor to the business now as well, a significant contributor to the business. She helps you with editing. Is that is that what she, she Turns does? out my wife is an outstanding literary editor. She, uh, all the way from developmental to line editing to proofing. I mean, she's really, really good at it, which of course, sweat equity for us, we don't have to pay somebody on the outside, <laughs> which if you're serious about your editing, which I encourage any author to be, please, uh, you're talking anywhere from probably $2,500 to five, dollars $6,000 a book to hire a really good quality outside editor to do the stuff Kathy does. More than that, actually, probably you'd be hitting 10000 a book. So that's a lot of sweat equity she puts in. Uh, when you think about it, if you put a, that price tag on it, that's a lot of money. So, Absolutely. So let's talk about your writing. I think this is a, a really incredible thing, how you're, you're tying together a lot of pieces from your background and interests. So what kind of books do you write and what inspires you to write them? I write whatever I want to write, <laughs> which is, I think, you know, there's this old saying among writers. There's so many old saws, pieces of advice among writers. Uh, some of them are just nonsense. Um, they say, write what you know. I disagree with that. Write what you want to know, uh, I think is a better way to say that. And that may include no knowing yourself if you're writing memoir or you know, thinly veiled autobiographical fiction. Um, if you wanna know yourself, then write about yourself that way. But um, I see it as, as a growth experience. So I've been writing professionally most of my adult life as a lawyer. So I came to writing with the toolbox, you know, with the mechanics fairly well settled. You know, I've, I have pretty impeccable grammar and spelling and punctuation, and I can uh, put together coherent sentences and paragraphs and write to a theme and that sort of thing. Um, I've never written fiction before, although, as I've often said, many of my opposing counsel will tell you I've been writing fiction for years. <laughs> but isn't that part of the job? That's though, right? part of <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So, uh I had initially wanted to write for the first project about the sort of uh, big idea, the meta theme of how war breaks everything and everybody and how we struggle to put things back together again, including ourselves and others. And initially, I, I, I had thought of setting the modern day, so Iraq and Afghanistan, and realized pretty quickly on that there's a lot of young women and men coming back from those wars still very, very traumatized by their experience. And they're just in the last few years really finding their own voice in writing, uh, in memoir, in fiction, in poetry. And there's some great stuff coming out. Um, and it, it felt as an older vet, you know, the gray haired vet that I was, 
I was misappropriating their stories before they had a chance to tell them. Maybe that was a little bit of cowardice on my part, but it just didn't feel fair to me. Well, it was the centenary of the First World War. So I thought, what the heck? Great idea. I can tell all the stories I want to tell. PTSD, yep, shell shock. Surviving catastrophic wounds. World War I was the first big conflict where there was a somewhat modern system of getting people off the battlefield where they would otherwise have died of these horrible wounds, exactly like Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, addiction, uh, coming out of World War I, a lot of morphia addiction, morphine addiction, and, uh, and of course, alcohol, obviously the same thing coming out of these wars. So I could tell the same stories, but in this interesting historical context. And of course, the post-war period where my books spend about two thirds of their time, um, it's the 1920s. I mean, how cool was that? Uh, so I knew a lot about the First World War. I didn't know a lot about the 1920s. So what I really wanted to learn was that period, the post-war period. Um, and that was a fascinating research deep dive for me. And I think it turned into some interesting and pretty decent stories. They've won all three of the books in that trilogy. The trilogy is called um, Sweet Wine of Youth Trilogy. All three of the books have, uh, have won awards. Uh, two of them are Amazon international bestsellers now. Wow. Uh, yeah. They're, they're, Look they're, at you. That's a fascinating it, thing. It turns out they love me in Canada. I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm like the Tim Hortons honey crawler of historical fiction. <laughs> so um, yeah, the Canadians keep buying my books. Um, so I've hit number one in Canada. Actually, one of the books displaced Margaret Atwood for a couple of days. <laughs> wow. I was, I was so excited. I mean, she's like, she's like a national monument in Canada. Um, so uh, yeah, it is been we sold a lot of books um they've been critically well received uh and i'm working on the fourth and fifth book now i always try to keep two in process at any time um so like when you send out one uh you know fourth draft of one to some outside readers you're you're not waiting anxiously you know chewing your nails you have something else to work on so i, I try to dovetail the books um so i've always got two going at a time um, i'm also working on a nonfiction piece now uh that's uh complementary of and in collaboration sort of roughly with Rectarian's um, work on uh, on uh, the Ageless Startup, Ageless Entrepreneurship. Uh, his book that just came out is being very well received. Uh, and Rick is a true expert in that area. So what I'm looking at is a piece of that as the, um, the Ageless Entrepreneur, um, writing after 50, basically, um, taking up a writing career after 50. Um, so what I call your right turn is the project with the appropriate spelling pun in the middle there. Uh, that's what the book will, that's the working title for that book. Um, we'll start as a collection um, of blog posts. I've done eight or nine year right turn blog posts on my blog. And that'll be the, the initial nut at the center of that project. And we'll expand that out um, and work from there. So That sounds great. Well, we'll have to have you back on when that's maybe you and Rick together and we could talk about that. That would be fun. Rick and I have been arguing for decades. <laughs> and that's because? Yeah, full confession. He's my brother-in-law. <laughs> another, uh -huh. another guy who married up. My, uh, <laughs> my, my sister, I've always adored my sister um, since as far back as I can possibly remember. And, uh, and I think my, my brother-in-law, Rick, did, did a good thing marrying her. By the way, vice versa. Terrific guy. Uh, I'm as close to him as my brothers, maybe closer. So, uh, yeah, I think they're a the great, great couple, uh, fun to be around. Um, really, really, really good people. Well, I know he is going to listen to this and he's going to love that shout out. I wanted to ask for your books. Did you happen to write about the Spanish flu? 
Yeah, I wish, you know, with the absolute perfect clarity of hindsight, I wish I'd written more about the Spanish flu. It is, it makes a guest appearance, a cameo, a couple of times in two of the books. Uh, I used it in the, in, uh, the second book to, uh, to kill off a minor character uh, that was important to the main, a brother of the main character. And, um, you know, off, off, off stage, he dies of the Spanish flu. Um, and uh, the third book, I used it um, for a much more important supporting character. Um, he survived the Spanish flu. And I also used it as a device. Uh, he was a young man. Part of his uh, backstory that's important is he, um, he got into the First World War a little bit too late. He missed the war. He missed all the excitement because he was recovering from the Spanish flu and didn't get to the front lines until two days after the armistice. So I used it as a as a timing device for that particular character. And I, you know, I, I used it instrumentally. I didn't really use it as an important narrative piece, uh, and I kind of wish I had. It was a, a tragic and fascinating thing, and uh, the big difference between uh, the current COVID pandemic and the Spanish flu pandemic, uh, which is also a form of, of a COVID virus or a coronavirus, I should say, um, was it, it overwhelmingly uh, hit younger people fatally. So people from the ages of 18 to about 35 were by far the group most susceptible to dying from the flu. And the problem was, and they've seen this a little bit with this virus, but it's not widespread, that the healthier your immune system is, the worse it was for you with the Spanish flu. It, they define that th this effect now is, is called a cytosine storm, where your immune system detects this and just goes into super turbo overdrive. What happens is with the Spanish flu, it filled up your lungs with fluid. Your immune system did that. That was your immune response, not the virus itself. Uh, and these young people ended up basically drowning in their own lungs. It's a horrible way to go. Uh, and of course, at the time, you have all of these people in that age group jammed into army camps and living in dugouts and trenches and what have you. So uh, I don't remember the exact figures, but I believe um, almost as many American doughboys uh, died of Spanish influenza as died of combat wounds in the First World War. Of course, the U.S. Incredible. got into it. The U.S. got into it late, right at the time, basically, as the Spanish flu took hold. In fact, it may have started within the U.S. Army. Uh, some people say that patient zero was a cook at Fort Riley, Kansas um, in 1918. Some say it probably emerged earlier than that, but certainly with America, that's where it started. Yeah. Well, it's incredible. So I want to shift now to what I'll call the rapid fire, what I call my fast five questions. The first one for you is who has had the greatest impact on you and why? Not trying to garner good husband points. I have to say my wife, uh, as, you, as, as we've already talked about, she turns out she's an amazing partner in my entrepreneurship business. Um, we met at the university. Um, we were both doing our junior year abroad in Scotland, actually, at St. Andrews when we met. And uh, I was a total mess as a teenager. And she, um, and she you know, sort of called me on my nonsense and has never let me backslide since. Mother of my children, she is decidedly my best friend and has been through 19 moves and 20 years in the air force. And now a couple of the grandkids, um, she, I, she's a, just such a remarkable woman in so many ways and, uh, has from the very beginning made me want to want to be a better man. So. Wonderful. What are you reading right now? Paul Theroux's, uh, the mosquito coast, which is an interesting book. Also the movie, by the way, 
Yeah, it's just interesting. I, I try to read. I don't read any specific genres particularly. I avoid reading periods that I'm writing in. Like when I was writing World War One in the 20s, I didn't read anything from that period, any fiction from that period, uh, just because I don't want to have subconscious plagiarism issues or anything. Um, other than that, I always say I only want to read good writing. I don't care what the genre is, as long as it's good writing. I used to finish every book I bought um, because I'm stubborn as a reader. I don't do that anymore. My time's too valuable. If I get 30 or 40 pages into a book and it's bad writing, I it gets chucked overboard. Uh, I review books, um, historical fiction books um, for uh, a really well-respected um, website. And I have been exposed to some really bad writing as a reason, and some really fine writing. But I, I give it 25, 30, 40 pages, and then that's all they get from me. What's one leadership trait that brings you success? I learned this from my first bomb squadron, bomber squadron commander who's from Pittsburgh, like like you, by the way. You're in Pittsburgh, aren't you? I am. Um, and uh, he always said that he thought the key to, to, to being a great leader was to uh, share the praise with everybody but yourself and jealously hoard all the blame, which I think is a great way to look at this. Any successes, and we had a very successful squadron. We were winning all kinds of competitions and everything else. Um, Colonel Pacini was really, really good um, at, hey, it's this guy's doing, this guy's doing, this crew's doing. I just got out of their way. That was one of the things you used to always say. All I had to do is get out of their way. Um, and But if there was blame, it stopped at his desk. If there was something that goes wrong, it stopped at his desk. Now, you may have taken his his um, his ounce of flesh out of you <laughs> behind closed doors, but publicly, um, all the blame stopped with him. And I try to emulate that. And every job I've done as a manager, as a leader, uh, because honestly, if you create an organization where everybody thinks you've got great people working for you, it just reflects on you. You know, they're going to think you're a great leader and a great manager too. So um, I, I don't seem to have had that need, you know, to, to, to sort of hoard all the, all the credit and praise to myself, which I guess is good. That must just be a DNA thing. Um, I've always actually been kind of uncomfortable in that position of, you know, being wildly praised for things. I try to avoid that because it makes me uncomfortable. So anyway. If you could have dinner with anyone, who would it be? Uh, as a fiction writer now, um, it's got to be Ernest Hemingway, whose birthday is 121st birthday. was just a couple of days ago, actually. Hey, all right. Um, Hemingway, like a troublesome guy. Uh, he was basically a pig, let's be honest. He was a, a, a loudish drunk and an anti-Semite and a racist and a misogynist and all those horrible things. I love his work. I don't love him. I'd sure like to see what made him tick. That's why I'd really like to have dinner with Ernest Hemingway, just to see what made that guy tick. <laughs> and you wouldn't want to get him mad, I'm sure. I wouldn't want to get him drunk because he had a habit, <laughs> habit of right. you know, inviting you out for fist fights every That's time. That's right. Drunk, so. That's right. Now, you did share one favorite saying earlier. I asked you a question that led you to that. Do you have an overall favorite saying or mantra that you live by? Yeah, most decidedly. Uh, I love FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, and his, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, has just echoed and resonated in my brain so many times 
throughout my life and all these transitions and different jobs and everything. So much of what I've seen, I saw this with really brave people I knew in the military coming out of the military and be, being turned into, you know, kind of quivering puddles of anxious jelly. What comes next? And it's all fear. It's fear of the unknown. It's fear of how am I going to make money? It's fear of, is my family going to be okay? Fear is such a crippling and almost always irrational emotion. And uh, I've seen that in business time and time and time again. Um, I won't make the jump uh, to do, to start my own company. I won't make the jump to expand in this new market area that needs to be served because of fear. Uh, and it, again, it's such a, a crippling emotion, you know, and I, yeah, I've laid awake at night worried about if we're going to make payroll at the end of the month. I, I know what that's like, you know, as, uh, as, um, as, uh, uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, I think, said, I don't want to misquote him, you know, in the dark night of the soul, it's always 3 a.m., right? <laughs> that, that staring at the ceiling at 3 a.m. is something anybody who started their own business knows, I think. Yeah. You just That's have it. to work your way through it. You do. Got to work your way through it. So how do people find you online? You mentioned you've got a series of books. Is there a website they can go to? I do have an author website that's got a blog. I blog. Uh, I, I post a new blog every Sunday afternoon. Uh, that's Jeffrey kwalker.com so j-e-f-f-r-e-y kwalker.com uh that's you can find all sorts of stuff about me and my books and also the blogs there's a hundred and almost 170 posts up there now i've been blogging for um three four years now uh and of course my books can be purchased at all the usual suspects so amazon of course if you go to amazon and put jeffrey k walker in the search bar i'm the only author that'll pop up uh, and my three books will pop up there barnes and noble uh, you can get them uh, in ebooks from from uh from kindle from nook from kobo from uh ibooks i guess they're apple books now aren't they uh so yeah all the usual suspect places awesome so the people will certainly find you and i'll include the link in the show notes thank you Jeff, thank you so much for being on Succession Stories and being part of the What's Next series. And I love how you told your story about your family and yourself and finding your next. So thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing everything. Thanks for having me, Lori. It was a true pleasure. Innovation, transition, growth. Easy to say, but hard to do. If you're an entrepreneur facing these challenges, I get it. I work with businesses from small to big for strategic planning with your team to achieve your vision. Visit smalldotbig.com to schedule a call with me. I'd love to connect with you. Be sure to catch the next Succession Stories episode with more insights for next generation entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening.